You're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars podcast with Nafa Ahoy, a show that shares the stories of successful Africans in business and how they did it. It's our story told our way to inspire our people. This podcast is sponsored by IDS Consultant Ghana Limited, a company dedicated to supporting small and medium-sized enterprises with accounting and business advisory services at an affordable rate. Visit www.idsconsultantga.com to learn more. You're starting a business early on. Very rarely are people investing in a business. They're typically going to invest in you. Yeah. And so this is where your credibility, your integrity, yeah. your, your personal values yeah. matter so much. Welcome to part two of our very interesting conversation with Sangu Delhi on Africa's Business Rockstars. Sangu, whilst at Harvard, I mean, aside having to study to ensure that you graduated successfully with honors, you had mentioned that you started your nonprofit, you started Golden Palm as well. So is this what path you went into right after graduation? So let's take a step back. I'll say that when I first came to Harvard, I was pre-med. Okay. I thought I was going to be a doctor. I had some entrepreneurial experience. So mm. I already mentioned how I lost all my money in bits.com. Yeah. But then after I started a clothing business, I had a Kaiser King friend called Abeku. At the time, he had moved to London. So I would buy Tim's. I, I found this outlet where I could buy Tim's for $40. Mm. And he would sell it for 100 pounds in the UK. So I'll buy it, I'll mail it to him, he'll sell it, we'll spread the profit. So we used to do that. Yeah. And then also back then, what was famous was white tees. Okay. Basic you know, the, white the, tees. The, the long yeah. white tees, but that was the, the gangster hip-hop era. Yeah. So those times we wear white tees and bandana. Okay. <laughs> Mommy, I didn't say it was me, please. <laughs> if my mother is listening, mommy, I didn't do something. <laughs> so I would buy them from um, Jamaica Queens for about $1 for one. Okay. And we actually were able to sell it for about six to eight pounds in London. Wow. So me and Abeko, that was the business we used to do. So I always kind of had this entrepreneurial yeah. thing. Yeah. But I knew that, oh, medicine was kind of what I was supposed to do as a good African boy. Yeah. And then after freshman year, after I think I took some classes in economics, I realized that I had other passions. Yeah. But I long had this thesis on the continent where I felt that I was observing a lot of trends, mm. socioeconomic trends, political trends. And I felt that it's, you know, it, there'll be tremendous opportunities to mm. invest. And I was talking about it with my roommate freshman year. And he's the one who said, you know, do something about it. Mm. And he's the one who then encouraged me to, to start the company, okay. Golden Palm Investments, and, okay. and basically taught me how to, what it meant to even raise capital, put together a pitch deck and, and all those sorts of things. I learned that through. So you started this company in the States? Well, I incorporated it in Ghana, Okay, but I started this when I was um, Harvard. at Harvard. So okay. when he encouraged me, I came because I used to come sometimes for holidays. Okay, So I came for holidays, incorporated it in Ghana and then yeah. started doing research okay. for where do I think the interesting investment opportunities are. So as I was doing this, I knew ultimately I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Okay. I want because I'll use an analogy here to explain it. So Jay-Z used to talk about how he owns all his masters, mm. the masters to, to all his songs. Mm. Mm. And at first he didn't own the masters for reasonable doubt. And then eventually he was able to get it. And he mm. always spoke about how for him, owning his masters was his freedom, mm. right? It was like no one owned him. Mm. He mm. owned himself. Yeah. And so I think for me, it was a similar notion where I wanted ownership of my time, my schedule, my brain, my creativity. Yeah. And I wanted to deploy that as I saw fit. Yeah. 
at the same time, I also realized with all humility that Charlie, there was a lot I needed to learn. Yeah. And so I plotted a path to say, okay, how do I learn as much from other organizations, other companies? How do I gain relevant work experience? Okay. Until I feel that, okay, I've amassed enough knowledge to kind of... Be your own master. Be my own master. Yeah. But at the same time, I didn't want to lose sight of it. So I always, I decided to run my business in parallel. Okay. And so 2006 kind of was when I started entrepreneurial journey, but I would still get formal work experience. So I spent my freshman summer, I wanted to get finance experience, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So I wanted to go on Wall Street because I had read about all these things and I was like, okay, this is where you're going to get the training Mm -hmm. and the tools. So I applied to all the investment banks, they're all bouncing. <laughs> because back then, most of the internships were for juniors. So they all bounced me. And I ended up going, using the Harvard Alumni Network. There was an online network. Okay. And it allows you to email up to 99 alums every day. So I emailed 99 99. alums every day (laughs) and I did that for like a month. Wow. And I was just every day, every day, every day. I mean, so when you do the math, I probably contacted like 3,000 people. Yeah. I'm just saying, look, I'm a freshman. I'm I'm from Ghana. This is my story. I really want to get finance experience. And through that, there was a wonderful man called Peter Shapiro. Okay. Who's a Harvard alum. And Peter is very, very, very special to me. And Peter kind of took me in under his his wings and his best friend was on the board of directors of Best Ends. And so through Peter's help, he got me an internship at Best Ends. Okay. And that's how my freshman year I got on Wall Street. And through that, after that, I was then able to um, get to Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. Yeah. And post Harvard, I worked on Wall Street for a year and then moved to San Francisco to work for a hedge fund where I focused on investing in public markets, but also private markets. So I did venture capital, mm-hmm. I did private equity, mm-hmm. I did global long short, and then I did some macro investing. It was exciting because back then was when we invested early in like Facebook mm-hmm. and Pinterest mm-hmm. and Dropbox and all these exciting tech companies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And all this, you had Golden Palm running on yeah. the site. I was going back and forth quite a bit. Wow. And then, I mean, I even did study abroad purposely to help. I spent... Some time at Legon. Okay. Uh, Mark Saba took some classes at Legon, which was also a very interesting experience. <laughs> I had a great time at Legon. I made a lot of uh, friends at Legon, some of whom I am still close with. Yeah. And I think it was an interesting experience for me to also at least see what it's like, right, to, to experience at Legon. And I ended up coming back to Legon as, an, as a visiting student when I was in law school. Let's talk a bit more about Onsangu, the entrepreneur. Yeah. Because that's quite a critical um, area for us as well. So Golden Palm, right? Tell us how it started. What exactly is that you do? How has the growth been like for Golden Palm? So Golden Palm, Mm -hmm. when I started Golden Palm Investments, and I'll tell you maybe just a little bit behind the name. So to me, the gold, Ghana, Gold Coast, it's more than just that. It represents our focus. If you think about what it takes to mine gold. A lot of work, you're digging in, all mm-hmm. of this. You mm-hmm. have this, then suddenly shine it, and then you have this beautiful gold. Mm-hmm. And it kind of reflected our perspective on how to make money on the continent. It's not like, you know how diamonds, sometimes you can just pick it from the floor. Yeah. Nah, nah, nah. You breath. <laughs> right? It was kind of the thought process. The thought process for us. And then the palm for me represented kind of the green in our flag, which is 
in mining the gold, we're not going to destroy mm. our vegetation. So mm. it was our commitment to social responsibility. Mm. It was our commitment to ensuring that we wanted to engage in sustainable projects that would not harm mm. the continent. Mm. So that was kind of the philosophy behind it. When we first started, it was two main projects we did, in uh, both in agriculture. Uh, the first was we invested in mechanized farms in Afram Plains mm-hmm. doing corn. And then the second was when I was at Pedi. Pedi gave me some funding. I wanted. I was interested. I was curious in trying to understand why is it that generally democracy fares better in, you know, anglophone versus francophone. I wanted to understand the relationship between democracy, indigenous social political structures. How have our various chieftaincy systems in both anglophone and francophone countries in West Africa played a role, mm-hmm. if any, the development of our democratic foundations? And again, they're nerding me, sorry. <laughs> so Pedi funded me and I traveled all over West Africa okay. and I interviewed the chiefs. Um, I interviewed, you know, from the Moronaba to Asantehine mm. to all the major chiefs. And I interviewed also a lot of the heads of states. Mm. Really incredible experience. By the time I did that research, I remember I was in Ouagadougou and I was eating kebab. I love kebab. Mm. Tell you, if you, if you want me to come anywhere, tell me there's kebab, I'll be there. <laughs> So I was, I was chewing this kebab and I was like, this kebab is cheap. Well, the price I paid for it, relatively speaking, was cheap. So I asked the guy, how come it's cheap? And he's looking confused. I'm like, okay, where do you get your meat from? Yeah. So he showed me where. So I went to the butcher where he got his meat from that he showed me. And I inquired. Yeah. And anyway, I traced the supply chain all the way to the cows. And I realized that at that time, cows in Burkina Faso were half the price of cows in Accra. Mm. Like if we're paying $600 in a crash, are these guys $300? Okay. So it's like a light bulb went up in my head. Yeah. So <laughs> we'd literally take a truck to Burkina Faso. We'd buy the cows and we'd drive them to Ghana. We called the operation Calbitrage. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's how we started. I mean, obviously today we're huge tech investors and we're doing all these sophisticated things. But yeah. people don't know that. That's how we started. started. (laughs) (laughs) So I've always been grateful to cows and um, I continue to have a lot of love for cows. But then why did you you face that out? Well, it's a scalability thing, right? Mm -hmm. So what you realize is we actually made great margins doing that. But you can do that if you are, you know, if I'm doing 10,000, 20,000, whatever. I can't deploy a million dollars in cows Mm. because at that moment, your supply becomes so much that you change the market dynamics. Mm. And so with limited supply, you're able to do that. Yeah. But once you, there's a ceiling to the scalability because when you scale to a certain degree, your supply becomes so large that you actually end up tanking the market. Yeah. The second thing also is there was an improvement. Part of this happened because of information asymmetry. But over time, especially with mobile technology and all of that, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not the only person who thought of this idea. Right? So more people <laughs> also course. start, the, the more you start seeing some of that cross-border transportation of cattle, then eventually equilibrium yeah. uh, becomes achieved. Yeah, so we, we got, out of the, got out of the cow business. <laughs> Let's talk about Sangu the Investor. Yeah, so I'll say, look, as an entrepreneur, we started on the Golden Palm, we started a number of different businesses. We did stuff in agriculture. Mm-hmm. We started a business in financial services. We started a business in real estate. I mean, we're, we're starting different businesses, trying to build these businesses. And I had all these ideas mm-hmm. for 
where I thought the continent was going. Mm -hmm. But it got to a point where I realized that there's only so much I can do. There's a bandwidth limitation. Mm -hmm. And you realize I say the continent and not Ghana because yes. I really, I believe that the only way we can build, with the exception of Nigeria, where if you are in Nigeria, market of 200 million people, but generally speaking, the scale Pan-Africa gives you is a market of 1 billion people, GDP of $2 trillion, right? And so when you think in a Pan-African scale, you are able to build a business that can now rival competitors in India, in China, in the US, in Europe. Right. Whereas if you, if you just think in Ghana, you're only looking at, today we're at 30 million. Back right. then we were, what, 10 million, 12 million, 15 million. Right. And back then we only had like a $4 billion GDP, unlike today where, you know, we're at 50 to 60 billion and 100 billion on a purchase and power parity basis. So I think that for me, Pan-Africa really allows you to create, you know, a, a business that can achieve tremendous scale to be globally relevant. And I had bandwidth limitation to be able mm -hmm. to do this. And so I realized that there are other people who are extremely smart, very talented, mm -hmm. driven, mm -hmm. who, are, who can go and build these businesses and do other things, who are already trying to do interesting things. And all they need is some capital to support them, some backing also, yeah, maybe like advice, a platform. A platform. Yeah. And so that's when we decided under Golden Palm, we we're going to kind of create this VC venture capital. The idea was we wanted to back the most promising businesses. So we knew from Jump Street, we're not going to be in everything. And we're not going to, look, there's some years we only do one investment. Okay. You know, we rarely will do more than, we'll do maybe one to three. Okay. But the idea is we wanted to have a concentrated portfolio of the very best ideas and the best entrepreneurs on the continent. Yeah. And I think that business model has invalidated. I mean, if you look at a lot of the businesses we've backed from Mandela, mm -hmm. which is Mandela, we raised a hundred million dollars in January and Mandela is damn near a unicorn now. You know, we're involved in Flutterwave from inception. Flutterwave has now processed close to $3 billion. Oh. M Pharma, which we're actually the first check in M Pharma, mm. started by Ghani <laughs> and Gregory Roxon. And M Pharma today has already impacted over 200,000 patients. And has just been, I mean, M Pharma won the school award okay. this year for the, you know, best social entrepreneur wow. and social enterprise in the world. Wow. Wow. You know, Sopo Watch, which is doing extraordinary things in East Africa, uh, Tizetti, wireless.com.ng, Frontier Car Group. I mean, we have a small portfolio, but our portfolio companies have raised over half a billion dollars in yeah. funding. You keep saying we. Yes. So it's a team. So I keep saying we because... Mm -hmm. I've never believed in the leadership of I. Mm -hmm. I think I is self-centered and dangerous. Mm -hmm. It breeds hubris and makes you believe that you accomplished it yourself. Yes. Right. And for me on two levels, it bothers me. So level one is it's factually inaccurate because, yeah. you know, it, it takes a team to yeah. do all of this. Yeah. Even in stuff that, let's say, I did by myself. Yeah. I know even then it's only by... God's grace, that certain pieces fall into the puzzle. I've never really taken the view of I. I don't like I. And I, I don't like leaders who talk I, I, I. <laughs> so do you have a team for Golden Palm? Absolutely. Okay, a team yeah, of how many team. people? So I'd say when we, we've reallocated, yeah. we used to have, I'd say, maybe about, I'd say today we probably have full-time staff, probably have about... Maybe about 30. Well, 30 full-time staff. Yeah. Okay. And on 
under Golden Palm, we yeah. kind of have our healthcare venture. Yeah. Our healthcare venture, at the management level, we have about 25 people. Okay. And that's separate from, obviously, the full-time people we hire in the healthcare venture would probably will be in the hundreds, probably close to five, six hundred or so. Okay. So even though you, I mean, you say we and it's a team, but then you conceptualize Golden Palm, right? As an individual. Correct. Okay. And then you had to get people to back this dream of yours. Correct. Right. How did you go about doing that? And how did you get the people that you currently have? Are these all based in Ghana? Do you have it spread across the world? Yeah. How did you go about doing that? How I went about, uh, so, so your first question is, how did I go about selling the dream? Look, right. I, I was fortunate in that my roommate helped me with that. He okay. taught me what it was like. He, he basically walked me through to say, look, you need to put together a deck. You need to be able to share your vision for what this can be. Uh-huh. He taught me about w- what it meant to put together what a business plan was about, mm-hmm. projections, you know, really walked me through all of that. And I, I'm, I'm very grateful to him for that. And this is something I've realized is, especially when, when you're starting a business early on, very rarely are people investing in a business. They're typically going to invest in you. Yeah. And so this is where your credibility, your integrity, yeah. your, your personal values yeah. matter so much. So from talking to you, it seems like Golden Palm is in pretty good standing. Yes. How much did you start the company with? And how did you get the money to start in the first place? Right. Well, look, another time I'll tell you the volatile journey of Golden Palm. And thank God today, we're solid standing. But mm-hmm. there's, it's been a long journey with, yeah. with ups and some very serious downs yeah. and times where I thought we'd lose everything. When I started Golden Palm, I didn't have much money. I was broke. I was a freshman year student at Harvard. I was working three jobs. Mm-hmm. I was uh, in dorm crew, which meant we cleaned toilets. Mm-hmm. I was an office assistant at CAS. And then I would also a few times do the phonathon at the alumni center. And I like that because you get a bit of free pizza. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I started it with $100 as my starting capital. And then I was able to go out and I raised $50,000 from classmates at Harvard and yeah, from, it was pretty much 100% of the capital came from my classmates. So just basically selling the idea to them for them to... So selling the idea to them and, and telling them, look, this is this is what I think I'd be able to do. These are the projects I found. Mm-hmm. I had a very thorough business plan. Mm-hmm. I, had project, I mean, I'd done a lot of the work up front. And it was bits of, you know, someone would give me their, you know, $2,000, their Christmas money, $5,000 here, $1,000 here, 500 bucks here, and then, you know, added it all up to, to 50000 Let's just say my investors are very happy with yeah. their returns. <laughs> um, cool stuff. Okay, now let's just go on to Sangu, the philanthropist. So you have two focus areas. There's water and then there's education. They're quite dear to you. So let's talk a bit about your Clean Aqua project. Yeah, so look, Clean Aqua, when I started, I met my roommate, Darrell Fington, who grew up in inner city Indianapolis. And he had seen gun violence and all sorts of horrible things growing up and we wanted to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And so we came together and we actually did, we had two initiatives. The first was a college bound where we wanted to solve the problem from his neighborhood. Okay. So we were helping kids from the hood get into university. Okay. We're pairing them with mentors. So that was our project to solve his problem. Yeah. Then we're like, okay, me What's coming from Ghana, w- what project are we going to do? So we said, we wanted to do something in development. We started, at first we thought, oh, maybe should we do something with malaria? We started doing research and this was 2007. Then the year 2008 was International Year of Water and Sanitation. So there was some news about that. And I found out at the time 
Actually, a billion people do not have access to clean water. And I was just like, what? Mm. Like, insul- like something you take for granted. Yeah. And at the time, 2.7 billion people did not have access to a toilet. And, and the lack of access to clean water and sanitation was killing more children than AIDS and malaria combined. Wow. I mean, it was, it was nuts. To every single day, you had like 5,000 kids dead. Wow. And so, we, I mean, it shocked our conscience and we felt compelled to do something. So that's right. when we started What's Now Clean Aqua. It started off as the African Development Initiative. Ended up, you know, starting in Ejimante, um, doing a project there, writing my honest thesis even on that, uh, on that project. And I mean, fast forward till today, we've worked in 160 communities in Ghana and we've, you know, impact, those communities impact 200,000 people. Okay. So that's something I'm very, very passionate about. I think that, you know, we can talk about lots of other things, education, hospitals, all these other things. But if the water you drink kills you, mm. you're not even going to make it mm. to that age yeah. to benefit from the others. Yeah. And so it's those basics, those fundamental basics. And it's something I'm very, very passionate about. I believe in a Ghana where whether you are from Nandom or Aflao, in Koko, Accra, in mm. Bunkugu or mm. Wale Wale, you have a fair shot at opportunity. Yeah. And that starts from the very basics that the water you drink should not kill you. Yeah. Right. And so it's something I feel very passionate about. The second thing, naturally, as a result of my experience is education. Yeah. I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for education. And I I sit on the shoulder of philanthropists and benefactors who have literally paved the way and paid for me to get here. And I feel hugely indebted. So as a result of that, I've tried to pay it forward by creating opportunities for people. I've endowed a scholarship at Harvard University for African girls in my mother's name. Okay. I've set up a number of different education initiatives. So I sponsor, again, in my mother's name, a scholarship with the MICE Foundation for girls in STEM. Okay. Uh, that Because what I'm very passionate about, especially, is gender equality yeah. and equity. So I've also endowed a fellowship with the Africa Research Women's Academy, where we sponsor women researchers every year to get on this fellowship, to be able to go in and have some experience doing research in labs and, mm-hmm. and other sorts of academic research so they can kind of get a leg up. At Harvard, also set up the Social Engagement Fund for students and undergrad to be able to do projects that benefit their community, so impact okay. projects. Okay. And recently, my father had been complaining that everything, everything is your mother's name, everything is your mother's <laughs> name. Goodness. So to keep him quiet on his for his 75th birthday, my present to him was I set up a, um, I endowed a research fund to support graduate students who are doing research on Africa. Because the more we can get people to do yeah. research that's yeah. relevant yeah. to our continent, the more we can gain the knowledge yeah. that will help us to catapult to where yeah. we need to be. Yeah. I invest a lot of capital in my philanthropic initiatives. But I do want to say that philanthropy of money is easy to a certain degree, yeah. right? As yeah. in, if you have certain capital, you can give. For me, what's more important is, is the philanthropy of time. And that is really taking the time to make sure that you're making a difference in people's lives. Yeah. And I've tried to do that in, in trying to mentor the next generation and to ensure that it's not just about throwing money at the problem, but it's mm-hmm. about putting our time and reflecting on, you know, I always think the greatest inspiration for leadership for me is Seventh leadership, when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, mm, mm, right? Mm. And, and t- it, to me, that just teaches me what it means to be a leader, yeah. right? It's not about 
he could have said, I'm Lord and Master. Yeah. I mean, but he, he knelt down and washed the feet of, of, of the disciples. And again, he had disciples going back to teamwork. It wasn't just yeah. him, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to me, that's what my biggest inspiration for leadership. And um, I try to remind myself that it's important I wash feet. <laughs> <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Sangu. So you're giving quite a number of talks, but the main one that I'd like us to touch a bit on is your TED Talk. It's quite famous, you know, one of the most viewed, um, your TED Talk on mental health. So tell us a bit more about that phase of your life. This journey has not been the easiest. Um, I went through a period where I faced a lot of pressure. I faced anxiety. I got depression. And I didn't, I failed to recognize it because I told myself, African man, we don't, you know, those things, they are white things. Yeah. You know, Ghana man like myself, strong man. <laughs> the devil is a liar. But it's foolish and it's ignorant, right? Because if you have malaria, I'm not going to tell you African man can get malaria. I mean, it's just such a nonsensical idea. Right. But somehow, because of this toxic masculinity um, that we've created, um, there's a sense in which we don't allow ourselves as African men to experience the fullness of our own humanity. Yeah. We deny ourselves the space to be vulnerable. Yeah. And, And a lot of things suffer. We suffer. We suffer in silence. Mm-hmm. I've had conversations with a lot of women and they always, they come and tell me, they complain because it's like the man does not even want to be vulnerable. Yeah. Does not even want to yeah. you know, show any emotions. Show any emotions. Yeah. And it is, it is harmful. Any man listening, stop it. It does not make you less man, less of a man. Yeah. In <laughs> fact, I think that I'm more of a man because I'm able to own my emotions. Yeah. Don't be a child. You need to man up and own your emotions. It's okay. Guys, sometimes I cry and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> like it's fine. Yeah. Right? Um, sometimes I'm sad and that's okay. I, I want to I, I own those emotions and say, look, being vulnerable does not make us weak. It makes us human. Yeah. And some people really suffer, especially with, with the prevalence of, of, of mental illness. So it's important for us to look out for each other. Take care of your loved ones. Check in. Be there for people. Let's end the stigma and let's break this idea of toxic masculinity. And I think eventually we'll get there. Nicely said. Thank you. So you have a lot of awards and a lot of accolades. Let me put that to your name. You know, um, pop you in Google and a host of things um, crop up. <laughs> but you did mention that the one time you actually got congratulatory messages or some show of emotion from your dad was when you got featured in Time magazine. Tell us about that. So before I even tell you about that, look, and I'm not trying to be self-deprecating here, but very honestly, when you have the kind of mother I have, yeah. these awards don't mean anything. Okay. I remember when I got into Forbes, I called my mom and I said, mommy, 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 I'm in Forbes. The mom blasted me. Did you buy your grandmother's vitamins? <laughs> and I hadn't. The way they give it to me. You don't go, go and buy the vitamins. <laughs> so when you have the kind of mother I have, some things they don't. So <laughs> me, I don't look. Child, I don't look at do because Charlie, this woman, <laughs> you know, the, you know, she oh, to buy my grandmother's vitamins. Child, never, she didn't even mind me. So, but yes, you're right. The first time I, my father ever said he was proud of me was when I got into Time magazine. I was featured in it. There was the 25 future world leaders, and I remember there were two Africans that were in it, me and my friend Tufe Cassis. And two figures from Egypt. So when I went back to Harvard, I did a joint degree program with a law school and a business school. 
Tufik was in my business school class. Class, yeah. So we we reconnected there. And I'll never forget that the day we did a photo shoot, the guy taking the photos for time, um, I remember he told us, we're really counting on you guys to change the world. Wow. And then we're like, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're young at this time, like 16. So I was so nervous. And then he looks at us and he's like, we're serious. It, it haunted me because I remember I was just like, oh my God. Yeah, so like much I'm pressure. Only, I'm only 16. Yeah, I'm like only 16, but whole, I've never forgotten that. Yeah. I almost sometimes hear him where it's like, there's this burden <laughs> um, that, you know, we, yeah. we can't leave the world as it is. We yeah. have to, we have to kind of fix the world, so yeah. to speak. But yeah, that was the first time our favorite father said. <laughs> <laughs> but how did you I'm as a person feel? How did you as a person feel? I remember at the time I smiled and I smirked and I felt like... <laughs> I've arrived. I've, I've, I know. Because <laughs> he told me when you've done something that he hasn't done. Yeah. I said, this one, have you done? <laughs> you will say I'm proud. <laughs> oh, thank you. It felt good. It felt good. Awesome, awesome, <laughs> awesome, awesome. I mean, I've had an amazing time talking to you. I'm sure our listeners are loving this episode. We can't even fit everything you've done in, into this um, podcast, but we'll be following your story. Joe, we'll have you back on again, you know, when you keep on achieving many, many more things. But before we let you go, we have what we call the rockstar quote. And it's basically what spares you or what keeps you um, going. So what's that rockstar quote of Sanku Delhi? So, I mean, I don't know if, you know, our quotes, you always have something beautiful and eloquent. <laughs> I, I doubt this is going to be it. I always carry the crucifixion with me. Mm. So I have the crucifixion on my desk in the office. Mm. I have it in my pocket mm. with me here. Mm. I have it in my house. And the reason for it is every time I go through, I just look up in the office. I see this guy on the cross. Yeah. And I say, you so okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I mean... What he went through, yeah. what he had to do, how he carried on. And, and that's why I, I told a friend of mine um, who's not Christian. I said, even if you're not Christian, mm. objectively, there's just something about how Christ carried himself that is remarkably inspiring. Mm. And that just gives us hope, whether it's what I alluded to earlier, the seventh leadership yeah. and washing the feet or the ultimate sacrifice he, he paid to save us. Every time I look at the crucifix, I'm reminded of his leadership, seventh leadership and sacrifice. Gives me the grit and the perseverance to say, keep going, keep charging. He did it. Thank you so much for being on Africa's Business Rockstars.